You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Invite friends as well. We're going to go through a couple of scriptures here, and then I'm going to ask my brother Frank to come up and uh, close us out with one final scripture. But I'll be reading first from Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, if your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And now Romans 5, uh, verses 12 through 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was, at, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Man, I've been hearing that guy read verses my entire life. It is worth it, parents, to read the Bible to your children. It sticks, even if we make it seem like it doesn't. It's our job to make you feel like you're not doing a good job, but I assure you, you are. So, all year long, I'm writing content, writing sermons, different Bible studies, men's and women's ministries, sub-ministries in the church, Sunday mornings, and it just keeps coming, right? And, And every once in a while, and it's never beforehand, it's while I'm writing, and I... I've developed the practice of taking notes all week long but not writing anything until Sunday morning around 6 a.m. I get up on Sunday mornings at about 4.30. I stare at the wall for a half hour, figure out where I am, and pray, read, and then begin writing. And today, as I began to write, I really felt like this is one of the few messages that I would say is the kind of message that needs to be remembered and meditated on all year long. It got prophetic really fast as I was writing this morning. And I love when God does that because oftentimes God will give you something important to tell somebody, but he won't give it to you until the very last minute because he doesn't want you overthinking it. You may be heading into situations where you feel like you don't have anything to say. And Jesus said, I will tell you what to say when you get there. Not because he likes drama, but because he likes to avoid it. And if we know too far in advance what the right thing is to say, we will by nature mess up the right thing to say. We've been talking about the or else voice, the voice of threat that we live under. And today... I want to talk about how the oral's voice can quickly go from a voice of threat to a voice that sounds like friendship and affirmation when it's not. There's two extremes in our culture that we all suffer from. Either the presence of too many wrong voices in our life. It's very easy these days to get a lot of people to talk to you about what you're going through or research and look online to see what people who are going through, what you're going through, are talking about. It's easy to get a lot of voices into your life, which also means it's very easy for almost all of those voices to not be helpful. To seem like they are, but to not be helpful. Bishop Quentin Moore loves to tell the ancient parable of an older fish who was swimming along, and he saw two younger fish and said to the two younger fish, how's the water? And the two younger fish just ignore him and swim on by, and when they're at a safe distance away from the older fish, they say, what is water? And the point is, when you're surrounded by something for so long, you no longer really know what it is. And it's easy to get ourselves around voices that even seem good, but when we're around them so long, if they're just a degree off, we won't know what's toxic and what's holy. Especially if they're agreeable to us. Especially if they're agreeable to us. You heard that? Then as a reaction to that, many of us spend a lot of our time with only our voice and our Bible. And it's me in my prayer closet with my Bible, which could be one of the single most dangerous realities in all of Christian history. Us by ourselves with our Bible is Peter with his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. All we will do is cut somebody's face off with it, and Jesus will yell at us 
and heal the person that we thought we were supposed to cut their face off. In both of these stories, oh man, in the Genesis story and in the gospel story, God speaks first and then the devil speaks second. God says to Adam and Eve, I've given you the garden. Work it, tend it, keep it, serve and protect in the garden. And then the slippery voice of evil begins to speak after God speaks. And here's the thing. Evil can only talk after God talks. Because all it can do is pervert. If there's nothing to pervert, it doesn't have a voice. But when God says a version, then evil can give a perversion. So once God talks to you, the next voice is likely going to be an almost godly voice. And it might not just be a thought in your head. It might be the next friend who texts you. Not their fault. They're not being demonic. But the way the enemy hijacks the voice of our closest friends and gets it to our ears to mean something even different than they intended. In Matthew, God says to Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he goes out into the wilderness and the next voice he hears is, if you are who he just said you were, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The next voice, if you are the son of God, I've given you every tree to eat. Has God not said, God first, then deceit immediately following in both instances. What we see in Genesis is something that in the deepest part of who I am, and Jacqueline and I worked on this message together, in the deepest part of who we are, we feel right now this is one of the prevailing issues among the people that we are pastoring. I'm not going to be one of those people who's like, because we're going through it, the whole world is. Don't need to say that. Here, one of the things that's happening here is that we are losing the Christian conversation in the home. Things are happening, and our go-to is, what's the best decision to make? What's the next right move? How am I feeling? What are we feeling? What do we want to see happen? And we're losing the conversation about Jacob and Esau and Ezekiel and Jesus and Peter and shipwrecks and whales that swallow people and bring them where they're supposed to go. I was meeting with somebody this past week, and halfway through the conversation, it dawned on me that I all of a sudden feel sheepish, bringing up what the Bible says. And I said, you know, Jacob was having an issue with one of his siblings. And before he was able to meet that sibling, God wrestled with him. Because before we can reconcile with somebody, we have to wrestle with our own self and figure out what went wrong in me, not what, what went wrong in them. And it's like the conversation just blossomed. And I thought, whoa, that's in my office, in our home, when there's games to get kids to and homework to be done and traffic and snow and warm weather and then cold weather again and then God is confused about what season it is and we're trying to help him out like all this stuff going on in our life it's so busy it's mind-numbingly busy sometimes all of a sudden when we're making decisions about little things like what's our plan for the week or a little bit bigger things like an issue we're having with a child or a spouse or a coworker to large issues where are we going to work where are we going to move how are we going to handle big financial decisions they're beginning to happen without the christian conversation we are people who are falling for the deception that our number one goal is to make good decisions when it's to honor and reflect the kingdom of God. Our number one goal is not to make good decisions. People who know Jesus and people who don't can make good decisions. Our job is to be icons. It's to be reflectors of the kingdom 
So it's not just making good decisions. It's the ethos, the center, the origin, where those good decisions are coming from that have the most impact. Where they're coming from. Who they're coming from. Adam and Eve are spoken to by God. Salem, I want you to hear this. It's so simple, but it can, it can skip. Adam and Eve are spoken to by God. And then when the evil enters the garden and starts to talk, Eve does not talk to God. Adam does not talk to God. Adam and Eve do not talk to each other. There's no conversation. And I will say this. Where God is not talked about, there is no conversation, even if you're talking. When God is not the center of our discourse, there is no discourse. Just noise and words. The Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. Why? Because Adam and Eve... I will go so far as to say, with a little dramatic flair, that their number one sin was not eating the fruit. It was the lack of prayer to God and the lack of communication with each other. See, because when Jesus, the bridegroom, is in another garden at the end of the gospel, and his disciples, or his Eve, is starting to be tempted, he speaks and says, take your rest later, lest ye enter into... He starts talking to us in the garden when we're being tempted. Stay awake. Be watchful. Your enemy prowls around. This is what Jesus says. He's not like silent Adam who just lets things happen because it's easiest. And his disciples talk to him. Adam and Eve allow the garden to become a wilderness of their own making because they make decisions that sound good without prayer and communication with each other. So the Holy Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness to begin to replant what we failed to tend and to keep. The Garden of Eden has become a wilderness, and the wilderness is not so much sand and desert as much as it's a famine for conversation with God and healthy communicating with each other. Many of us are living amongst unspeakable blessings, amazing blessings, blessings from the work that we've done well, and yet we haven't been in a pastor's office in a long time. We're handling our situations on our own. We're trying to keep our house from the busybodies, and so we've become isolated, and we're making pragmatically good decisions, but there's no influence of people who God has put in your life to help, listen to me, not give you answers, help navigate where you are with the Holy Spirit. Right? I, I don't know who's preaching out there today, but my job is not to give you answers. It's to help you navigate your relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's to shepherd, not to download. Jesus enters the wilderness, and if you're reading Chris's book already, I'm biting off of him here, as I do a lot, but now you're reading his book which my jig is pretty much up at this point. I was like, Chris, why'd you have to put it out just before Lent? I needed to copy you during Lent, and then you should have put it out. Jesus entered the, gar- entered the wilderness as the word of God to reword us. Not rewire us, to reword us, to put a word back in us that we can then offer back to God and offer to each other in Christian discourse. People are saying, I don't really have time for the Bible anymore. I don't really know what I'm doing when I read it. Look, I'm sure we've had a pivot. We've had a deconstruction. Things have changed from the way they were. But one of the things we do, one of the ways we let evil win, is if we take things that were good, that were misused, and throw them away. The goal is not to take good things that were misused and throw them away. It's to take good things out of their misuse and put back where they were meant to be. Not to throw them away. Okay. So, the question is, 
Who was Jesus talking to in the wilderness when he was talking to the devil? You like how I phrased that? One person, Brian Zod, who wrote a wonderful Lent devotional called The Unvarnished Jesus, he says this. But how did the devil come to Jesus? Did he come wearing a red suit, sporting horns and a forked tail, carrying a pitchfork? I have to pause. I have to pause because I don't know if anybody saw the Grammys, but Sam Smith dressed up like the devil, and the whole Christian world freaked out, lost their minds. I pay attention to this stuff. I don't really care what non-Christian people say about stuff because I don't expect them to be saying good things anyway. I care about what we say about stuff because we're supposed to be saying non-judgmental things. We don't do a good job with this. First of all, Sam Smith did not dress up like the devil. He dressed up by what culture has said the devil might look like. But in no way, shape, or form does Scripture say anything about pitchforks or horns or tails. But he wore red. Oh, my gosh. Bill Bernasconi has red on right now. Barbara has red on right now. Out! Rihanna, she wore red, and it was satanic. You know what's ironic about the Rihanna wore red, and it was satanic thing? Three days later was Valentine's Day, and I never heard a Christian woman say, don't give me a dozen of those satanic roses. My father-in-law, one of the greatest human men ever to walk the face of the earth, it's true, I stood right there while George walked Jacqueline down the aisle and thought to myself, I used to think this man had wisdom, but he might be making a mistake right now. Every year for Valentine's Day, he would give his daughters one red rose. So when Jacqueline and I got married, I continued the tradition by giving her a red rose because she talked about how much it meant to her that her father did that. First of all, George, let me thank you for not giving your daughters 12 red roses. <laughs> Wonderful financial decision. I'm, I'm literally at the, the store and the guy's like, a guy in front of me is like 12 and she's like $89 and I'm like, one red rose, please. <laughs> and the person behind me is like, one? And I said, well, you understand, my father-in-law used to do this for my wife her whole life, and so I began doing it, and now I also get a white one for our daughter. Oh my God, you're so sweet, and it's inexpensive. You are the man, <laughs> the man. So one red rose for Jacqueline, one white rose <clears throat> for Sophia, and Jacqueline doesn't say, why'd you give me the satanic one? We, now joking aside, we glorify things that are not really wrong so that we don't have to pay attention to the fact that the most demonic part of Sam Smith and Rihanna was our judgment over them. That's us wearing red. We have to realize it's called deception for a reason. I don't care what social media or truth social or any other nonsense says it's deception because it gets us to act not like Jesus that's not the that was just part of the quote let me finish the quote blah 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 carrying a pitchfork <laughs> the devil came to Jesus the same way the devil comes to us disguised as our own thoughts. If you could go back in time to the moment Jesus was talking to Satan, you would see Jesus standing there by himself. Because where does the devil show up? Here and here. If he showed up out here, Super easy to say, ugh, 
But when he shows up as one of my good ideas, harder to say no, because I think I have pretty good ideas. That's the problem. And this is what Brian Zahn goes on to say. As Jesus considered the course of his ministry, the devil tempted him to compromise the integrity of his mission. Jesus couldn't be tempted by overt evil, so the devil tempted him with a trilogy of good ideas. Jesus, feed yourself. If you're hungry, you have what it takes to feed yourself and even feed everyone with this bread. That sounds good. Jesus, jump off the temple and just know that God will protect you. That sounds good. I want to know that he'll protect me. Jesus, here's kingdoms. Isn't this why you came? You can have them right now. That is why I came. That sounds interesting. But here's the funny thing. Satan wants Jesus to offer people bread, but not become bread himself. He tempts us to want to write the check, but never to get messy in the injustice we're writing the check to. He wants us to send thoughts and prayers but not go to the place where the thoughts and prayers need to be. He wants Jesus to jump off the temple, not become the temple. That gets torn down and rebuilt three days later. He wants Jesus to become the king of these kingdoms, but Jesus came to save us from these kingdoms. Do you see the trick? Jesus, they're yours. Isn't this why you came? I did not come to be the king of these kingdoms. I came to deliver people from these kingdoms and start a new one. The tricks in our own mind, they sound like good ideas, and that's what gets us. And when there's no Christian conversation in the home, we start to believe them. When we start making big life decisions because of good ideas, we might be desperately off and never know. The devil tempted Adam and Eve with becoming like God. Listen to me very carefully. The, what Satan tempted Adam and Eve and said, you can become like God by eating this fruit. But there's a new temptation that's the exact same temptation said a different way for us now. Their temptation was you can eat this fruit and become like God. Our temptation is that we can go into the wilderness and do what Jesus did in the wilderness by ourselves. We think the Adam and Eve thing is what happens to us when we're not right, which we, that is true. And then we think that what Jesus did is what we can do the way Jesus did it, and that's where we go wrong. If I go to the wilderness, first of all, I'm not fasting for 40 days. Right away, my man made it 40 days. You cannot say, if, because Jesus overcame temptation, so can I, unless you can fast for 40 days in the desert. Love, playing field is pretty leveled. You can't. You probably won't even be at a desert to even try. I'm not going to get into what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. All I'm going to say is this. The fact that Paul is writing in Romans 5 means he's the pastor of a church in Rome, and he's writing them a letter talking to them about Adam, Eve, and Jesus, and he's the one who's helping us understand the relationship between Adam, Eve, and Jesus, which means that the only way we know about Adam, Eve, and Jesus and what it means for our life is because a pastor got up and wrote a letter to a church, and the church listened to it. This is going to border on a lot of stuff that a lot of us have gone through for a long time, but listen to me very carefully. We are not called to go into our prayer closet and figure out our own Christian life by ourselves without the church. We were not called to do it. Jesus reveals the devil by showing up in the wilderness. The devil didn't come to Jesus. Jesus walked into the desert and showed us that he's there. And Jesus' life is so pure 
that we see when Jesus is around, we see what Satan is always saying. His life revealed Satan to us. Satan can't show us himself. Jesus can show us Satan. And so when the perfect son of God, when the light of the world, as we sang today, went into the wilderness, all of a sudden Satan is exposed and the way he tempts is exposed. But he reveals our need, and we're going to talk about this briefly, for covering, for mission, and for devotion. But first I want to read this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer says this, We must ask God daily to preserve us from the sin of straying from unknowing sin. For if we ever stray unknowingly onto the path of evil, then we often quickly come to enjoy this path, and straying becomes evil intention because we think it's good. All of us are going to say, well, I know that I'm not being deceived. How do you know if you're being deceived? If the deception worked, what are you going to say? I'm not deceived. You could sit there confidently and tell me, I know I'm not being deceived. And that confident certitude might be the very clue that you have no idea the wool's been pulled over your eyes a long time ago. Satan doesn't get us to make free decisions. He coerces us with deception. Deception. It's not obvious. That's why it's called deception. We're making decisions all day long. What school are we going to send them to? How are we going to handle the situation that happened? How are we going to discipline how do we handle our finances? Is the relationship I'm in healthy for me? Is the church I'm in healthy for me? Is the house I'm in healthy for me? Is it time to go? Is it time to stay? Is it time to take less money and have a job I like? Is it time to take more money and have a job I don't like? These decisions are happening all the time, all over the place. And my question to all of you in your home is, and I want you to think about this all week, all month, all Lent, is when you start to make the decisions, does Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 1st and 2nd Peter, Amos, and Deuteronomy, do they become part of the conversation? Do you find Moses in Exodus? Do you seek out the prophet Jonah and hear what he has to say? Do you read Titus and 1st and 2nd Timothy to figure out how to lead people well? Do you read the Beatitudes to hold up against the way that you're living your life and say, where do I have opportunity to grow as a person in my love and my patience? Do we read James and remember that when things fall apart, God might be excited because the things that are making us fall apart are the things that are falling apart. And we're trying to keep things that are killing us from falling apart. And God is saying, count it joy when you fall into these trials, because the stuff that needs to come out is coming out. Did we used to do this the wrong way? Absolutely we did. We used to claim scripture. Have you ever met somebody that said, I randomly opened my Bible today? Do you know it's impossible to randomly open your Bible? I get bet a thousand percent that anybody who's ever said, I randomly opened my Bible, never opened to Genesis chapter one. Because you know where it is. Uh, unless your Bible was random, you open to the Psalms or Isaiah. That's what you did. Because it's in the middle. If you open to the end, you did it on purpose. Would you know, I just opened to Revelation chapter 21. No, you didn't. You dropped your Bible, went to grab it, looked, and it happened to be Revelation 21. We've done this wrong but it doesn't mean we throw the whole thing out, Salem. We need to get back. And listen, if you live by yourself, Eve didn't talk to God. Adam didn't talk to God. If you're married, Adam and Eve did not talk to God, nor did they speak to each other. This covers the whole gamut. No one talked to anybody until it went wrong, and then everybody's got a conversation. She made me do it. He made me do it. The serpent made me do it. The garden made me do it. Where were you, God? The woman you gave me made me do it. And God's like, two of you, and I feel like there's a crowd. 
at one point, God felt like all of us who ever had kids. Why did I do this? They're cute. They're cute. They're cute. That's what it is. They're, they're adorable. They're going to grow up to be, I'm going to have to die. That's what he said. I'm going to have to die. We have to recover the Christian conversation. We cannot hide from the community where God speaks primarily. Primarily, God is a community within himself. Primarily, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a community. He speaks primarily to community. So, covering mission and devotion. Covering spiritual authority and church life. Everybody's favorite words. Spiritual authority and church life. Paul is the one who explains what the heck is going on with Adam and Eve and Jesus. The New Testament writers are the ones who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because their disciples said, before you guys die, can you please write this down? It's so good. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the last books written because the disciples of these pastors said, please write it down so that we can keep reading what you're saying. No one was like, we can do this by ourselves. No one was like, I met Jesus and he pulled me out of this and I was about to commit suicide. Those stories are true. But then they went to people. Paul himself went, and he spent 14 years just sitting under the disciples before he even opens his mouth. Jacqueline was pregnant with Sophia, and we realized we had to move out of the place we were in. And I don't know how this happened, but we found a place. It was like a converted barn, but it was still pretty much a barn. I was a confused, probably scared person. And I was like, this is it. <laughs> this is, we're going to move here. It was like an hour away. And Jacqueline was like, okay. And that made me nervous because she never agrees that quickly. Usually there's something she's trying to tell me when she agrees that quickly. So she says, okay. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to talk to Pastor Mark about it first. So I take Pastor Mark out to breakfast, Pastor Mark Arstead, and I said, hey, uh, you know, so what, what, what have you been reading? Oh, I've been reading this, this, and this. Oh, cool, 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 cool. Uh, you know, and this is what people do, and I do it too. Whenever you want your uh, pastor to affirm what you're doing, you try to package it. So, you know, I was, I've been really hearing from the Lord lately, and, uh, you know, we're still going to be committed. We're still going to be committed. We're going to be very present, and we're still going to be committed, but... We're going to move about 45 minutes away up to the top of a mountain, but it's called Mount Zion Road, <laughs> so you know it's good. I got about half of that out of my mouth, and he's like, uh, first of all, Pastor Mark, if you know him, the way he puts his ketchup on his eggs is the most, it's artwork. It actually looks like checkers. Who does that? Mark? And he looks up and he's like, you're an idiot. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> you, this one, I'll take the check, you. He's like, you're not moving there. That wouldn't work on any conceivable level for you, especially for your wife, who's going to need her parents, your parents. You're going to, when you, when you need people to watch this kid, you're going to make them drive to the top of Mount Ararat <laughs> and like drive past Noah's Ark to get there. So, I actually, sometime I shoot, no. I actually get, I'm like, thank God, this is great. We, we're, we're not, Jacqueline, we're not moving. She's like, oh, nice. Like, I'm like, you didn't think we were supposed to do this the whole time. She's like, no, I did not think we were supposed to do this the whole time. So, I get to church, and I close my eyes that following Sunday, and I say, Lord, this is the dumbest thing. I said, Lord, did you, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this to people. This is honest to God truth. Did you tell me to go to that house so that later you could tell me no 
so that you could see if I'd obey or not. And the Holy Spirit's like, I never told you to go to that house. It was ridiculous from the beginning. It's ridiculous now, and it will be ridiculous for all of time. It's like there was no, we always act like we always heard from God whenever we think we did. Well, he must have told you yes so that he could tell you no, because like Satan, he wants to trick us. But spiritual covering kept me from making a decision that would have put other people out in ways that my limited brain at the time could not have known. When I think about how many times my mother and father-in-law and my parents have driven to our house to get our kids, it would have been so rude if we had moved to Mount Zion Road and they ran out of gas on the way up. It's not abusive. And I want you to realize here that what you see on the screen is the bottom of a pyramid. This is a pyramid scheme. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Spiritual authority goes at the bottom, never at the top. I'm telling you this because this is what I believe about the authority that I hold. And this is what I believe about any position of authority any of you have in your life, any of it. Authority is not at the top. It doesn't trickle down to the bottom. In the kingdom of God, the waterfall flows up. Authority is not somebody who's over you. The most trustworthy authorities are the ones who get all the way under you and hold you up to the Lord. That is what your authority is supposed to be. That is why I have a bishop in my life, so he can teach me what my authority here is supposed to be. You don't take it, you receive it. Anybody who's trying to take authority has none. It's meant to be a foundation for people's life, not a command center, a stabilizer. We've used it wrong, but we don't throw it away. It's what has helped Jacqueline and I, our entire relationship, and Jacqueline and I individually, our entire life before our relationship. Not shipwreck is having people in our life who cover us from the bottom up, who hold us, who bear us before the Lord and keep us in the light as he is in the light. You, every one of us, including me, needs to ask, is there somebody in my life besides those in my house who gets to speak directly into it to help me navigate my walk with the Lord? Face to face, not on a screen. Okay, I'm going to continue because this stuff needs to be said. On top of that, we need Christian mission in our home. Knowing the subplot of our life. Whenever things go on, so, so mission is knowing the subplot of our life. Whenever things go on in, my, in our marriage, when things begin to go wrong, when things get rocky, when finances get tough, when this stuff begins to happen, Jacqueline and I know, we know what it is we're here for. We know what it is we're doing. We know what, like, we have a narrative. We have an understanding of what God is doing in our life from the inception of our relationship to now and from our own personal walks. We know. Do you know, when you become the pastor of a church, everybody has a trillion expectations of what, say, the pastor's wife is supposed to be. And Jacqueline has sifted through all of them to be who she believes she's supposed to be. But in order to do that, you have to know that there's mission. You can't just go through things and not have mission behind it. 
Otherwise, and I listen, this is my heart. I, this, this, this could bring tears to my eyes. So many of you are going through so many difficult moments, and you don't know what the subplot, what the undergird, what the foundational narrative for your life is. You're just making decisions and going, and it's tough. But when you have a Christian mission, even tough times start to feel motivating because you know God is pulling you back in that arrow or you know that he's bringing you into the wilderness, or you know that he's treading on you like grapes, but really it's because he's turning the raw material of who you are into sweet, savory wine for other people's lives. Like, we need to know these things. Like, what are you called to? What are you doing? If you exist, you have a calling on your life that is unlike anybody else's. And that part of that calling is why you're going through what you're going through. I'm going to read a quote from a devotional that I read every day, and this devotional comes from Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program. The reason why I have this book is because Jacqueline and I, years ago, were told by our bishop that one of the things we need to read regularly is the material that is offered to people who are working through abuse and addiction, because we have to know Things you can say to somebody who's in a healthy place are not necessarily things you can say to somebody who is wired and triggered by something. Somebody who's dealing with addiction or is dealing with trauma has to be spoken to a particular kind of way. You cannot just say Christian things to them because it's right to say. So we regularly read this material to learn how to talk to people in different kinds of situations. So this is a quick quote from one of those readings by Melody Beattie. She says, Selecting a group and attending regularly are important ways we can begin and continue to take care of ourselves. Actively participating in our own recovery program by working the 12 steps is another. Notice what she just said. Choosing a group to be a part of is one thing. Participating in the steps of that group is another. And when I read that this morning, I thought, how many people have selected Salem as the group they're involved in, but don't participate in the steps of the church? Because this, what we're doing right now, forget about the time, forget about all the stuff, forget about all the things we say and do, the colors, the fabric, the Eucharist. You know what it's all for? It's all for our recovery. Have you sinned? Have you damaged other people? Have other people damaged you? Have you damaged yourself? Has the world damaged you unbeknownst to you? We need recovery. But we need mission to understand that. When I signed up to do things like clean, work with the kids, become assistant pastor, become the youth pastor, paint Pastor Phil's fence a few times, get Pastor Mark T so he didn't choke while he was singing. The reason why I did those things was because I needed recovery. They weren't stepping stools to get to here because that's manipulative. Youth group is not a stepping stone to a higher position. It's a holy position all by itself. Cleaning the church is not a stepping stool to a higher position. It is a holy position by itself. And it teaches us recovery. People might think, they just want people at this. He just wants people at Wednesday night because he wants to know, you know, pastor. I actually heard somebody say this to me. You know, I know why you want a lot of people there on Wednesday nights, because it's more fun for you to preach when there's people in the room. You're darn right it is, number one. Did this by myself for six months, and I was going crazy. But more than that, more than that, you're recovering every time you walk through those two doors. You're recovering when you put a vacuum on the floor of the sanctuary. You're recovering when you go to the prayer meeting at 9.15 before service begins. You're recovering 
when you read a book with the church and discuss it together. Why? Because those are not your ideas. You're bringing your body into a place that you wouldn't normally choose, and that discipline is opening you to the recovery of the Holy Spirit. Stepping stones? No. Recovery? Yes. And finally, devotion. Sowing time into God. In 2014, this is three years before I had a clue what I was going to be doing, and I was working at the Country Children's Center Daycare Center. Wasn't even at Allstate yet. And I was standing in a classroom with all the kids asleep. And I was like, it smelled like poopy in there. (laughs) Anybody ever been in a daycare center before? The minute you walk in, you're like, hey oh. And I said, Lord, what is this? And you know what rips through my head? David was tending sheep when Samuel found him. Why? Because the narratives are there from the time we've spent reading God's story. Sorry. The Bible. They're there. There's things we can tell ourselves that we're allowed to tell ourselves. Jesus said, suffer not the children to come to me. And right in that moment, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, you will never learn to pastor until this room means something to you. A room filled with children who just need to be held and kept together. Do you know what this guy right here said to me recently? Yes, Steve, I'm pointing at you. You know what he said to me recently? Pastor, thank you for letting me preach. I appreciate that. But I feel like God is calling me to teach downstairs and to help work with Boys and Girls Club. Do you know how much that excited me? Because I remember when I had that moment too. I remember when I thought the place I was at with the kids was less than the place where I wanted to go, and God told me, this is everything to where I'm sending you. Because who you are to these kids in Westchester County is who you're going to need to be to every kid that ever comes into that church that you pastor wherever and whenever it is. And then to hear another person have a similar revelation, this kind of connectedness is because of the stories in the Bible. God gave Jacqueline and I Psalm 126, 127, and 128, which has, Psalm 126 has to do with losing. Psalm 127 has to do with waiting. And Psalm 128 has to do with the dangers of reaping. And we have fed off of those three Psalms since 2014. Fed off of them. We keep going back to them. They matter to us. Every quote I gave you today came from my devotional time this morning. I read Brian Zond Lent devotional. I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lent devotional. And I read Melody Beattie's devotional on codependent relationships. Just one page in each. Don't think I was up reading exhaustively for a long time. It took me a total of 20 minutes to read those three devotionals. And that is what God gave me. Salem, you could read those same three devotionals in the same amount of time and go to work with fresh baked bread just like that. Is the Christian conversation in your home or are all the blessings that God blessed you with making you too busy to say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, but can you give it to me on the run? Toss it, I'm open. We have to recover the Christian conversation in our home. Let's stand to our feet this morning. As the worship team comes up, there's one more thing I want to say, and then we'll come to the Lord's table, and then we will rescue our teachers from downstairs. God's like, rescue them from the kids. You've learned nothing, obviously. (laughs) God talks. I I need, close your eyes. Listen to this. Listen to this. Not academically. Listen to this in your heart. Please listen to this in your heart. 
God talks to Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve sin. Well, God talks to Adam and Eve, and then Satan talks to Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve sin. And then God comes into the garden. My whole life I was taught that God showed up in the garden because Adam and Eve sinned. As if what gets God close to us is our mess-ups. Over the years, I have learned that God is not attracted to my mess-ups. He's attracted to me. And whatever comes from me is something he wants to be involved in, whether it's holy or unholy. He wants to be a part of it. And this is one of those moments that this revelation is not, it's not complicated. But I said, Lord, then this morning, why did you show up? And the Holy Spirit said so clearly to me, I was coming anyway. Why do you think I showed up because I sinned? Because you sinned. Why do you want to even know why I showed up? I was coming anyway. I was going to show up regardless of what happened because showing up is what I do when I'm in love with people. That's what he does. If they never sinned, they would have heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. If they sinned, they would have heard the sound. The only thing that changed is not God. It's Adam and Eve's response to the presence that always shows up. So number one, when, you ha when you're in the valley of decision in your life, God is going to talk to you. The enemy is going to talk to you. And then God is still coming to talk to you. He's coming to talk to you. You don't have to speed. He's coming to talk to you. Which means when we're in that position of power in our life and others around us have sinned and fallen short of our expectations, our job is to keep going to them and never make them think that our approach to their life has anything to do with their behavior at all. I'm specifically talking to you, mom and dad. What we say when we get to our kids has very much to do with their behavior. But that we get to them should have nothing to do with their behavior. It's them. It's Sophia. That's why I go to her. It's Theodore. That's why I go to him. When I get there, we'll work it out. And something tells me that I'm going to have a lot of stuff to work out. <laughs> and I'm going to need all of you who have done this before to help me. Dear God, help me. But we're going to work it out. I'm not telling you if you have been abused by somebody that your job is to keep going. I'm speaking in basic generalities. But let me say something right there really fast. If you've been abused by somebody and you feel guilt for not going back to them, please understand it is not your responsibility to go back. God will send somebody to them. God is the one who will keep showing up for them. You don't always have to. It is never the responsibility of the abused to heal or be there for the abuser. God will send somebody else to them. I have, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to the door and say goodbye to you. I'm going to go into my office and write because there are so many things that I feel like God wants to say over these next few weeks to reorient us to what it means to keep having the Christian conversation in our life 
and not just be pulled by these or else voices that sometimes seem threatening and other times seem very wooing, almost like God, but are not. So this sermon ends with a comma or a dot, dot, dot to be continued. Lord Jesus, it was on the night when you were betrayed that you took bread. And when you had given thanks, you broke it. And you said to all of us, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you come to this table, eat this bread in remembrance of me, to be united to me, to be at one, reworded with me. And after supper, you took the cup of wine. And when you had given thanks, you blessed it. And you said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And this was the moment that Jesus said, it is not just that I'm going to offer you bread. I'm going to become the bread that is offered to you. So become the bread that is offered to each other. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would descend on this bread and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you descend on us also that we might become food for the world. Not stuck in our own thoughts, but open to the voice of the Holy Spirit spoken through the prophets and apostles of the Bible, the saints that have gone on for thousands of years before us, those in our life now. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Salem, we're going to have Elder George will stand over here, and I will have Elder Bill stand over here. Come to the Lord's table, worship with us, and be blessed. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.